0: In the consult, we discuss cases that are violent and sexually violent in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to The Consult. I'm Julia Cowley, retired FBI agent and profiler and former special agent forensic scientist with the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. Today, I'm once again joined by retired FBI profilers Angela Serser, Susan Kostler-Drew, and Bob Drew, and we'll be continuing our discussion of the Twilight Rapist case. Now let's go over the victimology. An individual's personality and lifestyle will affect their chances of becoming a victim of a violent crime and will also determine how they will react when confronted by a violent offender. Their actions may affect the activity of the offender and the eventual outcome of the violent confrontation. Susan, do you want to tell us a little bit about these victims collectively?
1: Sure. All of these ladies would have been described as what we would consider to be low risk. One of the things that when we're looking at victimology, actually three things, basic things we're looking at is availability, vulnerability, and desirability. One of the things that affects this vulnerability is the actions of the lifestyle of the victim that could potentially put them at greater risk. In other words, if Just for an example, if a victim has a drug abuse problem or if a victim is a sex worker or some other type of activity that could put them in contact with individuals who might want to harm them, that that individual might be considered at a greater risk. In this case, all of these ladies had lived in their communities for quite some time, were very well known. I believe all of them attended church. They were well thought of, but they were also all either had been single their entire life or were widowed and so were living alone. So, in this case, although their risk factor was low as far as their lifestyles were concerned, their vulnerability was probably greater enhanced by the fact that they lived by themselves. And in some cases, in rural areas where their homes might have been somewhat more isolated than had they been in a very densely populated urban community. Although that in this case, there were a couple of examples of them living in a more urban area, they were still living alone. Also, the fact that they were older made them more vulnerable as far as maybe not being able to defend themselves against an offender. And Their age in this case clearly could have been part of the desirability factor as well. This offender was not random in his selection of his victims. In every one of these cases, it was clear that they had been selected and targeted. And we believe not just for the fact that they were potentially more vulnerable, but also an older woman, in this case, was more desirable
2: to the offender. When we talk about desirability, people commonly get confused as to what that term means. In our usage of that term, it means the factors that raise one victim above another in an offender's selection process. That victim, that type of individual, is someone that this particular offender finds more desirable as a target for his intended crimes. That is as varied as human beings on the face of this earth. Desirability as defined by fashion, culture, et cetera, varies across the globe. It also varies over time. For instance, in the Marilyn Monroe days, Marilyn Monroe was considered the epitome of desirability to the general male public. Yet 20 years later, Twiggy, who was a model in the 60s and 70s, was considered very desirable. And she was very different in her physical attributes than was Marilyn Monroe. These are just changes in the general public. Now, if we go to different cultures, we find that there are very different. Things that are considered desirable. And then when we get into individuals, we find that even within the same culture, there is extreme variation in what an individual will deem as desirable. In this case, with this offender, there was a a seeming conscious decision to target women within a certain age range that he found most desirable. That ranged from 59 at the very youngest and 96 at the oldest.
1: And that combined with the vulnerability that was inherent in their advanced ages and the availability of them because of their solitary lifestyles is what caused him to select these victims.
0: In terms of what we saw in the behavioral analysis unit, selecting victims who are elderly is not that unusual. We saw a lot of cases where the victims selected were much older.
1: Yes, I think as sort of a public service message that sometimes in speaking to groups outside of law enforcement, I think people have been shocked to find out that, as you just mentioned, that these victims were were older and have heard feedback from women of a certain age, that they never thought of themselves as being potential victims of sexual assault, that they had sort of aged out, if you will, of that possible threat. And as Bob just pointed out, I think it's important for any woman of any age to understand that simply because they're older, that this does not necessarily make them less of a target for an individual who may have a very focused desirability and a desire
2: to, a, to offend. We ran in, uh, actually ran into several victims. When yes. we were, the woman with the gun had pulled me aside and told me that this offender had actually changed. She had made some changes as a result of having been victimized in this way. And the changes that she made was her son bought her a new gun and a new box of bullets. And she was saying that it would be a very different result if this offender were to return. She seemed, I will say, at least seemed the least distraught of all the victims. And that makes sense because she had had a ready plan and she had already kind of acted on that plan and successfully scared him off. And I think her subsequent plan, she was just as committed to, and I sensed that if he did return, she would, in fact, at least have attempted to kill him.
1: And although her home had, prior to the incident where she tried to fire a weapon, although her home had previously, she was one of the victims where their home had been previously burglarized a couple of weeks beforehand, that she had not been sexually assaulted And therefore, I think, was not as affected as greatly, although I think anytime there is a certain level of violation when someone enters your home who is not invited, that perhaps was less impacted and also had gained some strength from the fact that she had been able to react strongly against the offender. I will say that we did have contact with several victims during the time that we were out there and others, unfortunately had been significantly more impacted. And as a result of their victimization had made some significant changes in their lives, not being able to remain in their residences, had moved, had gone to live with family members, et cetera.
2: And one actually had had a stroke and died a couple of days after the, the offense occurred. Yes. This is not to make light of the effect on the, of this individual on this community. That the reason that that 81-year-old woman with the weapon stood out and is remembered to us to this day, it was a, a very unusual response. The majority of women we saw, and a couple of them in particular, were just completely devastated and frightened beyond anything that they had ever experienced before. And it had reached a point with them where they were pleading with us to please do everything we could to get this offender in custody because they could just not feel safe.
3: 1979 is one of the first research studies that was conducted by Groth and Birnbaum. And they did extensive research over many years of 500 sexual offenders. And from that research, they were able to come up with three rape suspect typologies. And those are widely used today by law enforcement all across the United States and probably the world in establishing profiles of serial rapists. Mostly it's used for those that are yet to be identified. So they're trying to establish a profile for a rapist that they haven't identified that's still out there so that they can narrow it down. They're not cookie cutter by any means. And there's been other research done since then, but the basic tenets have remained the same throughout the years. So there are three categories. First typology is power rapist. And in that category, there are two subcategories. Power rapist is convinced of their sexual prowess. They're known to show less aggression than other types of rapists. And they only exhibit anger in response to victim resistance because they don't want to harm the victim physically. They just want to achieve sexual submission. And once the person becomes submissive, then they continue with what they're doing without physical violence. So, as far as the two subtypes are concerned under power rapist, there's a the power reassurance rapist and there's the power assertive rapist. The power reassurance rapist is also known as the gentleman rapist. And this is the one that fantasizes that it's a consensual encounter and that the victim desires him. He may even tell the victim or ask the victim to tell him this during the assault. The gentleman rapist or power reassurance plans the assaults ahead of time and relies on the threat of a weapon, but again, only uses it as a threat. Sometimes doesn't even actually have one, but just makes the threat. And once the victim is compliant, then they'll stop with any type of violence. Sometimes they'll have the victim undress herself, they're complimentary, attempt to sexually satisfy her as well. And they may reconnect with the victim or attempt a second assault to relive the fantasy. So power assertive is someone that sees himself as macho man, for lack of a better term. And the most important thing to him is to have others see him as a a man's man, basically. His assaults are impulsive and unplanned, and often they meet the victim maybe that day or evening, like a bar or a party or something. He focuses his anger to prove his virility and his power over women. So this perpetrator would use abusive language and obscenities. He sometimes experiences sexual just dysfunction, just like that of the power reassurance. The second type is the anger rapist, and this perpetrator focuses his anger at women but he can also be aggressive toward men. It's misplaced anger at randomly chosen women. And it could be because another woman in his mind wronged him and he's taking it out on whoever he attacks. It's unplanned, out of anger, and again, precipitated by events in the offender's life. These are more unpredictable assaults. And there's a rage level there that can go from verbal abuse to murder. So you can see this is a more violent offender. Force and violence are excessive not only when the victim doesn't resist, but it likely intensifies if they do. These sexual offenders often cause significant physical injury in addition to the actual rape because they want to humiliate and degrade women, and the purpose of the assault ultimately is to punish. The third and more rare type of rapist is the sadistic or ritualistic rapists. And these are the more extreme. Their aggression is fueled by erotic destructive fantasies. Their motive is to achieve sexual gratification through causing mental and physical pain and suffering. So it's calculated and pre-planned so that they have a chance to do whatever they want to do for an extended period of time.
0: Serial sexual murderers tend to be in that final category.
3: Yes, their attacks will go from extreme violence to murder to dismemberment.
2: Well, I think through the lens of the rapist typologies, I think we confidently say that our guy, the offender in this case, fits the power reassurance type. Again, these these typologies are guidelines to go by. And as much as they do group and and I'd say effectively group certain types of offenders together and distinguish between certain types of offenders, they're not to be relied upon to the extreme. They are guidelines to, to view and to perhaps gain a little bit of insight into what might motivate these individuals and what they might do in the course of, of their crime. Yes, um, and
3: some of these. Perpetrators will fall into more than one category, so it's not cookie-cutter type of thing where you know that the particular offender is going to have every single one of the categories in either of the three.
2: I think realistically, those typologies are are, are, are more effectively looked at as points on a continuum as opposed to mutually exclusive categories. That said, this offender seems to mostly match the description of the power reassurance
0: rapist. Sometimes if you take a snapshot of an offender's escalation, you might look at an offender at first and think, oh, power reassurance. Then later on, you might see the offender sadistic rapist. It is a continuum, and you have to look at a number of their crimes to really determine what kind of individual they are, and they can evolve
2: Part of the problem is we try to categorize them, again, exclusively, and the assumption there is that this individual has one fantasy upon which they're acting to which they're servicing in their offenses. In fact, as we know, individual possesses more than just one fantasy and may choose to act on another fantasy, or they may not fully act at first On their fantasy. And as they become more versed at their offense or they become more comfortable committing offenses, they feel more free to fully act out their fantasies. And so what appears to be a change is actually, as Julia said, just an evolution.
1: I think it's also too where they first encounter law enforcement as far as where they are within that continuum. In this case, in some write-ups by individuals after the offender was caught, in one of those write-ups, the person commented that it was unusual for this person to have started offending in this way at age 53. I think it's important to note that although maybe there's no criminal history prior to that date, the date of capture or the date the first the person comes to the attention of law enforcement is not necessarily the date that the offender began offending. And so that can also alter the perception of the individual. And as Julia said, if you're looking just at one snapshot, so you must consider kind of what could have happened before and afterwards. I think in the case that was previously discussed, for example, the Golden State Killer, that there was clearly a change and a development over the years with that offender, and until all those cases were linked, it would have been difficult to connect some of those later cases to the earlier cases.
0: In fact, they weren't.
1: And in fact, they weren't, and in this case, we know what this offender was doing during this time period, but as we'll learn later, he had lived in several different parts of the country as well as in in Europe, and that part of his possible offending history was unknown.
2: Not to mention that rape is among the most underreported crimes there is, and that's worldwide. And when it is reported, particularly in the past, it was not always pursued with investigation and or prosecution. So someone who in 2009 is 53 years of age, looking backward, it is very difficult to say that each and every offense that he committed would have been detectable through researching him, it is likely that he committed numerous offenses for which he was never apprehended or never identified even as a suspect. So we take these snapshots that we have, and in this case, there were numerous offenses. So we have more than just one snapshot that informed us, but we have to still look at them as a snapshot, not an entire film. Part of our job in profiling this case for the law enforcement in Texas was to see if we agreed that they were all linked to a common offender. Now, I got to say half of that work was done for us through DNA evidence in that five of these cases had been linked through common offender DNA, and they spanned from first, second, third, seventh, and ninth case. However... Due to the commonalities that we observed in all of these, whether it be strictly behavioral in a sex offender context, or in MO, in a burglary related context, there were so many similarities that we were able to confidently say our professional opinion was that all of the included cases were in fact linked to a common offender.
0: Bob and Sue, do you want to talk about the unknown offender characteristics that you provided to the investigators?
1: Sure. There were several things that we provided, some of which we've already talked about. For example, the sexual dysfunction of the offender, and that the primary motivation was sexual, even though he was doing burglaries, the primary motivation was sexual and was based upon his unique individual fantasies. And then What also became apparent, and we felt very strongly that he was somehow researching his victims remotely or through some type of a database because these victims were so low risk and so spread out over hundreds of miles, that we felt strongly that there was some type of data that he had access to that was allowing him to be able to identify these particular
2: victims. Just to go down the list of what we provided law enforcement at the time. I will give you the bullet points and then we can go into some detail. But we said that in our professional opinion, the offender was a skilled burglar, that he was physically agile, that he was confident and organized, that he displayed some evidence consciousness. That doesn't mean that he was adept at at obscuring evidence. What that meant is that he did some things that showed that he was evidence conscious, such as wearing gloves, he stripped sheets from, from victims' beds and washed them in the washing machines, he disabled or extinguished exterior lights and some interior lights, he disabled phone lines, he um, took cell phones away, etc. cetera. However, he left DNA evidence. So it, we won't say he's sophisticated to a high degree, but we will say that he was conscious Of evidence and attempted to obscure it in the sources that he was aware of. Susan mentioned he was sexually dysfunctional. His primary motivation was sexual and based on fantasy. He was detail oriented and fastidious in his daily life. And we said that because he was observed as being neat, well groomed, articulate, polite. He was planned, he had clearly prepared to commit his crimes, and he paid attention to details. He was not apparently intoxicated. Even in the way he was dressed, he displayed a consciousness to detail and a neatness. We thought he was most likely employed because a lot of his crimes were perpetrated around long weekends, pre-dawn hours, before a workday begins. So it was as if he were working around, say, a, quote, normal work schedule. When we took into account that he had a 450-mile radius in which he offended, we struggled with how did he arrive at the choices that he made if they were such a long distance apart? And what we surmised and what we, again, this is conjecture because this was not something that was proven, but we thought that he may have access to some databases where he could remotely research individuals as potential victims
1: he was likely to be a native of texas or at least somewhere in the in the area and that was because that none of the victims mentioned that he had an unusual accent whether it be a different type of southern accent or a foreign accent and so that led us to feel strongly that he, if not a native of Texas, was someone that had lived there for quite some time, or at least spoke in a manner that was not going to be, he also didn't try to disguise his voice. He didn't, you know, cover his mouth or try to use a different tone or accent or anything else. And so because there was nothing remarkable about that was something that these women probably heard on a an accent that these women heard on a a regular basis. And because he didn't try to fully obscure his face, he was also not someone that was known to any of the victims, not someone that they would have seen on a regular basis. The victim that was unfortunately victimized twice, she in fact did recognize him when she saw him the second time from the first offense. So she's the really the only one who during the offense recognized the offender. And that was the second time that she saw
2: him. We also felt that because he was traveling extensively, there must've been some reason for that travel that he may reside near some of the victims, but he clearly, if he resided near some of the victims, he clearly didn't reside near the others. He may have had contacts that did so he might have lived close to some victims. He might have had friends, family, uh, business associates, et cetera, that, that lived closer to, the, to other victims, or he had reasons, be it professional, personal, et cetera, to be in the areas where these victims resided.
1: And certainly have familiarity with all of these areas.
0: On Saturday, January 8th, 2011, a man was arrested in Edna, Texas, which is about 100 miles southwest of Houston, for attempted rape at a nursing home. The intended victim had activated her medical emergency bracelet, and after a brief foot chase, Billy Joe Harris was apprehended. Harris was a 53-year-old Black man who was living right outside Houston in Missouri City at the time of his arrest. And Bob, you testified in his trial and he had an interesting defense.
2: Yes, before I get into that, I just wanna say before I forget, it was very interesting that he was caught by someone activating a life alert bracelet. That was not the first time that he encountered that. In one of his earlier offenses, a victim had had activated a life alert bracelet and it caused him to, to flee the scene. This is where we talk about evidence consciousness as opposed to evidence sophistication. Someone who's evidence sophisticated would be more likely, having run into a a negative experience with a life alert bracelet, taking that as a consideration for any future offenses, but he did not. And he only saw it on those two, and there was some distance in time between them, but he had not apparently checked for Life Alert bracelets, etc., even though his, his victims were all potentially people who might subscribe to Life Alert. Anyway, I was called to testify in this case, and specifically, I was called by the defense attorney who wanted to contend that this was an irresistible urge that was driving Mr. Harris to commit these crimes and that he was powerless against this urge. In any event, I did testify, and the offender did have a very unusual defense. He claimed insanity and claimed that he suffered from multiple personality disorder. In fact, the defense brought forth a psychiatrist who testified that he had diagnosed Mr. Harris with multiple personality disorder. Also, during the trial, Mr. Harris began behaving strangely, fell to the floor, began engaging in behavior that appeared to be as if he were suffering from some sort of seizure. In his testimony, he claimed he had three different personalities, one of which he called David the dog. He claimed that he had been visited by aliens. He also claimed to have been a childhood victim of... Sexual abuse. This was not successful. And in fact, the conclusion of the case was that he received a a sentence of life plus 99 years. Since that time, he appealed his conviction and lost that appeal. So he is serving the rest of his life behind bars and will never be eligible for parole or release.
1: During the case, the psychiatrist's diagnosis was stricken from the record and was not allowed to be part of the evidence presented. Our analysis of Mr. Harris's behavior certainly does not indicate a multiple personality disorder or anyone, someone who is suffering from a severe mental illness. And some of the aspects of his personality that we discussed in our offender profile such as his confidence, his organization, his evidence consciousness, his specific selection, surveillance, planning, planning with regards to his victims, all indicate an individual who is not also having to deal with multiple personalities or, again,
2: any kind of a serious mental illness. As we indicated in the crime analysis, he was neat and tidy in his physical appearance. He was gainfully employed at the time of his arrest. And Uh, had
1: been gainfully employed for many, many years. Yes. With no indication, as far as employment records go, of any type of unusual behavior or psychosis or acting out, et cetera, over years of employment both with the military as well as with the
2: state. Yes, we found that he had been in the military, that he had been assigned overseas in in Europe. As well as in the United States. Yes, that was well prior to to the onset of these set of offenses, that he did display skill and attention to detail, which if you are seriously mentally disordered would be very hard, if not to a, a do on a single case, certainly on multiple cases, when you display this level of competency and detail orientation, that is not something we would expect to see in someone who is severely mentally ill. Also, it should be said that when he was apprehended, his car was seized. There was some evidence that he had referenced a computer to facilitate some of his crimes, and that specifically would be Google Maps applications of that nature. There were printouts of such applications in his car at the time of his arrest. All of that says that there was a consciousness about him.
3: It's worth mentioning that multiple personality disorder is a controversial diagnosis, has been for years. Some experts consider it junk science. So it's not surprising that it got dismissed. It's been used by offenders
0: in the past as a means to try to get out of their offense. Claiming insanity generally a very ineffective way it's rarely successful in a defense
2: legally when people think of insanity they think insanity is a technical term for crazy in fact the legal term insanity has very specific tenets that are very difficult to prove and that normally are not proven in court it is a it is not a common defense and the reason why it's not common is attorneys know that it they would only use it if it were kind of a last ditch effort to either reduce their client's sentence or to have their case dismissed. But in all likelihood, it's going to be unsuccessful.
0: And in cases where it is successful, oftentimes those individuals are removed from society for a much longer period of time had they been deemed sane when they committed their crimes. It's a misconception that you can claim insanity and get a lighter punishment.
1: Exactly. A verdict in that way, as you just said, Julia, means institutionalization and treatment for mental illness until mental health professionals deem that individual to no longer be a threat to society.
2: In this case, it wouldn't have resulted in a longer sentence because life plus 99 years is about as long as a sentence as there could be. But what it could have done for him is have the conditions in which he would live from that point on be less dangerous, perhaps more comfortable, and he would be treated as a patient as opposed to an inmate. In any event, it was not successful in either his trial or in his subsequent appeal. And so he will be serving the rest of his life behind bars in prison.
0: This episode of The Consult was written and produced by me, Julia Cowley. The show was edited and mixed by Mike Aris and the music was composed by John Hanske. If you'd like to learn more, please visit the consult website at www.truecrimeconsult.com. That's www.truecrimeconsult.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at the consult pod. Thank you for listening.